Chapter 31, Sections 2 to 3 of J.B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Student's Roman Empire, Part 2, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter 31 Roman Life and Manners, Sections 2 to 3. Section 2. Houses. The houses in Rome were of two kinds, domus and insulae. The domus was a private house, generally inhabited by one family, and of not more than one story above the ground floor. The insula was a building of three or four stories, let out in flats or rooms, and inhabited by people of small means. The insula was so called because it was detached and stood like an island, surrounded by streets. The ground floor was generally let out in shops. The garrets of the fourth floor were called cenacula. The upper stories had windows, and sometimes balconies, from which people could shake hands across the narrow streets, and sometimes the higher stories projected over the lower. These houses were often cheaply and badly built by speculators. They were generally of wood, and they were constantly either tumbling or being burnt down. Augustus made some attempt to remedy these evils, and fixed a limit for the height of houses. But Nero was the great reformer. He ordained that the outer walls should be built of pepperino stone, and introduced other improvements. It has even been suggested that he caused the great conflagration in order to be able to carry out his reforms. In the Domus, the dwelling of the rich man, most of the rooms were on the ground floor. The two most important rooms were the atrium, which was the original nucleus of the house, and the peristylium, both open to the sky. The hearth, beside which the household gods were kept, was in the atrium, where also were arranged the ancestral images, imagines. The space exposed to the rain in the center of the atrium was called the impluvium, and in it was a marble foundation. The peristylium had likewise a foundation in the center. An open space in the middle was planted with shrubs and flowers and surrounded by columns. The dining rooms, sitting rooms, withdrawing rooms, bedrooms and kitchens opened out from the peristylium, which was kept as a sort of private court, while the atrium was used as a recreation room. The floors on the ground floor were generally of stone or pavement, that is, pieces of stone and brick beaten down to a smooth surface. In the upper stories, the floors were of wood or concrete. The walls were usually decorated with paintings on a prepared white ground, but wealthy and fashionable people at Rome used to line their walls with marble slabs or adorn them with mosaics of brilliant colors. Ceilings were ornamented with paintings or relief in stucco work. Sometimes they were divided into small sunken panels resembling lakes, hence the name lacunar. There were windows in the upper story looking both into the street and into the inner court, but the ground floor rooms were chiefly lit from the atrium and peristylium. There seems to be little doubt that glass and other transparent substances were used in the windows. The rooms were heated by braziers or by pipes of hot air. Of the imperial palaces, we know most about the Flavian palace of Domitian, of which there are considerable remains on the Palatine. It was not a comparatively modest dwelling place, like the house of Augustus, 
but consisted of a number of stately rooms for public purposes. At one end is a very splendid throne room with a lorarium or imperial chapel on one side and a basilica for judicial business on the other. At the other end of the peristyle is the triclinium for state banquets, and beyond it is a series of stately halls, which may possibly be libraries, and an academia for recitations and other literary purposes. A sort of nymphaeum, a room containing a fountain with flowers, plants, and statues of nymphs and river gods, was placed at one side of the triclinium, if not on both, so that the murmur and coolness of the water and the scent of the flowers might refresh the wine-heated guests. The whole of this magnificent palace was adorned with the greatest richness, both of design and materials, with floors, wall linings, and columns of oriental marbles, alabaster, and red and green porphyry. Even the rows of colossal statues which decorated the throne room were made of the very refractory basalts and porphyry from the quarries of Egypt, at a cost of an almost incredible amount of labor. Remains of these were found early in the last century. The position of the Flavian Palace is very remarkable. It is built on an immense artificial platform, which bridges over a deep valley or depression in the summit of the Palatine. The Roman villa or country house of the rich was generally situated on the seashore or among the hills for the sake of coolness. The Laurentine villa of Pliny overlooked the Tyrrhenian Sea. It consisted of numerous rooms of various forms and dimensions, and designed for various uses, united by open galleries. Most of these chambers commanded, as may be supposed, a sea view, and enjoyed nearly a southern aspect. Some were circular and looked forth in all directions, others semicircular and screened only from the north. Others, again, excluded the prospect of the water and almost its noises. Some faced west, some east, to be used at different seasons, or even different times of the day. Behind this long line of building, the outward appearance of which is nowhere indicated, by Pliny in his description of it, but which seems in no part to have risen above the ground floor, lay gardens, terraces, and covered ways for walking and riding and among these were placed also some detached apartments, such as we might call summer-houses, while still farther in the rear rose the primeval pine-woods of the Latian coast, which supplied the baths with fuel and formed a chief recommendation of the locality. Pliny's villa among the Tuscan hills seems to have been still more extensive. He describes in a letter the sylvan beauties of the spot, the wide range of plain and meadow stretching before it to the Tiber, the slope of leafy hills on the skirt of which it lay, the massy amphitheatre of the Apennines behind it. It is approached by a long portico leading to an atrium or central hall, such as formed the nucleus of the town residence, but there the likeness ends, for whereas in the house at Rome all the living rooms open upon the atrium, and lie compactly arranged within the four outer walls, in the villa almost every apartment is substantially independent of the rest, and only slightly connected with them by suites of open galleries. The Tuscum seems to have abounded also in gardens and plantations, its situation being better adapted for such luxuries than the seashore. But neither in this case is there any mention of the exterior appearance, nor any hint that the reader might be expected to derive pleasure from the description of it. 
It is evident that an architectural design did not enter into the ideas either of Nero, when he flaunted over Rome with his palace of palaces, or of the elegant master of the patrician villa by the sea or on the hillside. The villa of Hadrian at Tibur was laid out as a sort of miniature world. It contained a representation of the underworld and a number of buildings called after the Lyceum, the Academy, the Prytaneum, and the Posile Stoa at Athens. The Vale of Tempe was imitated with artificial mountains. There were libraries, temples, and a small theatre. The villa was full of works of art, some of which have been recovered in modern excavations. Section 3. Meals The first meal of the day among the Romans was the Eantaculum or breakfast, generally taken about the third hour. It was very light, generally consisting of bread seasoned with salt or honey, or dipped in wine. Schoolboys in some cases had their breakfast at cockcrow, and got a sort of pancake. The next meal was the perandium, corresponding to our lunch, or more nearly to the French déjeuner. It was taken at the sixth hour, about eleven o'clock, and might be as simple as a piece of bread, or consist of a number of courses of fish, flesh, and fowl. The regular hour for the cena or dinner, the chief meal of the day, was the ninth, but it was often later. A fashionable entertainment was marked by the earliness of the hour, and early dining was considered a sign of luxury. The dinner always lasted a long time. Three hours was considered a moderate length. The ordinary Roman of modest means dined in the atrium with his wife and children, but rich men had separate dining rooms called triclinia. The men reclined on a lectus or couch, the women sat. An elaborate cena consisted of three parts, the gustatio, somewhat like the zakuska of northern Europe, consisting of shellfish, olives, eggs, and other hors d'oeuvres, to stimulate the appetite. Then the cena proper, of several courses of all sorts of viands, after which offerings were made to the lairs, and the third part of the dinner, called mense secunde, second course, was served consisting of pastry and fruit, and corresponding to our sweets and dessert. Augustus used to give three courses, furcula, trays, of viands, or at the outside six. Juvenal mentions seven as luxurious. The arrangement of the dishes on the trays and the carving of the joints became, with the development of luxury, a special art. One tray often contained a large number of viands. At the dinner of Trimalchio, described by Petronius, a furculum was served with twelve dishes of fish, meat, fowl, vegetables, and fruit, arranged to represent the signs of the zodiac, and when the guests seemed disappointed, the upper part was removed and richer dishes, such as hares, capons, were discovered underneath. The Romans ate with their fingers, and hence used to wash their hands after each course. They wiped their hands on pieces of bread, which were afterwards thrown to the dogs. At dinner parties, nine was the usual number. Three couches, lecti, were arranged on three sides of a square, and each accommodated three people. To make up parties, it was usual for invited guests to bring uninvited persons who were called shadows, umbre. Sometimes the host asked a client to fill the vacant place. Thus at the dinner of Nasidienus, described by Horace, there were nine at the table, and Messenus, the guest of the evening, had two shadows. 
the Romans dressed for dinner, the garment consisting of a colored tunic, vestis senatoria. When they reclined, they took off their sandals, which the guests gave into the charge of their slaves, whom they brought with them for the purpose. The Latin for, he rose from the table, is, he called for his sandals. During the meal, the guests were entertained by reading or music, acroama. Literary hosts used often to bore their parties by reading their own compositions. At the entertainments of the fashionable, there were frequently dancing girls and singing girls to amuse the guests by their performances, which were of a very loose kind. Dancers from Gades were especially in request. Juvenal tells his friend Perseus, whom he invites to a modest meal, that he will not see girls singing the lascivious songs of Gades to the sound of castanets, but will hear a recitation of Virgil and Homer. It was a frequent practice at the end of entertainments to give presents to the guests to carry home with them. These were called epiphoretta. The style of the slaves who waited was considered important by fashionable people. Africans and handsome Greeks from Asia Minor seem to have been the favorites. They were either dressed in showy silk or went without clothing of any kind. It was the custom for the guests to address the slaves in Greek. In third-rate society, manners at meals were often coarse and violent. Horace says that to fight with cups is a custom which should be left to the Thracians, but it seems to have been common in the civilized world. The vulgar freedman Trimalchio, in the satire of Petronius, throws a cup at the face of his wife Fortunata, who has just called him a dog. Juvenal hints at quarrels and bloody faces as a feature of entertainments given to freedmen by their patrons. Lucian, in his Lapithae, gives an account of philosophers fighting at a wedding feast. Dephilius fights with the slaves for a fowl. Xenothemus, seeing that a larger fowl has been set before Hermon than that which he has got himself, snatches it. They throw the birds at one another and tear one another's beards. Xenothemus flings a cup at his antagonist, and, missing him, hits the bridegroom. Then the women throw themselves between the opponents, and the cynic Alcidamus uses his club with great effect. A general fray ensues, and cups are freely hurled. Allowing for exaggeration, this description shows that scenes of the kind sometimes occurred. The public banquets, convivia publica, given by the emperors to their friends, must be briefly mentioned. An invitation to these was considered a great honor by senators of the highest rank. Statius was so elated at being invited to dine with Domitian that he wrote a special poem on the occasion. The wives of senators were sometimes present, as, for instance, at a banquet given by Otho. Claudius used to give large dinners constantly to about six hundred guests. A story is told that on one occasion a guest was suspected of having carried off a gold drinking cup, and that on the next day an earthen cup was set before him. The fare provided by Augustus was very simple. That of Tiberius was said to have been hardly decent. Under the three subsequent emperors there was a reign of luxury. Vespasian's dinners were costly without being extravagant. Gold plate was a privilege reserved for the emperor since 16 A.D. All the guests appeared in the toga, and all, irrespective of rank, enjoyed the same fare. The treatment of the guests by the various emperors at their state banquets was very different. Augustus, in his role of a true princeps, was friendly. 
Trajan also showed himself very sociable, and the Antonines doubtless knew how to make their guests feel at home. Domitian was condescending, according to his admirer Statius, haughty according to the adverse testimony of Pliny, who states that he used to dine by himself before midday and sit at the public banquet as a mere spectator. A curious story is told of a grim practical joke which he played upon a select number of distinguished guests. He decorated a room in funereal black. The walls and ceiling and the floor were all black, and stone seats, also black, were arranged in order. The guests were ushered in at night without their attendance, and each man saw a pillar like a gravestone at the head of his seat, and his own name graven on it and a sepulchral lamp hanging above it. A band of blackened naked boys then entered, danced round the room with hideous gestures, and offered the guests fragments of food such as are presented to corpses. The guests were terribly frightened. They expected death at every instant, and Domitian spoke of funereal subjects. But presently, when the emperor was sufficiently amused with their terror, he ordered that the silver cup and plate on which the food had been served should be given as a present to each guest, and likewise the slave who had waited on him. End of chapter 31, sections 2 and 3